Oh, hello, everybody. Hey, the pub is open. Spring is here. Well, at least in the Pacific Northwest, which means cool, cloudy, rainy weather. Wait, wait, wait. So how's that different from fall and winter? Well, I, I guess spring is not really that special, but there is something special I wanted to share with you because Mike found this really interesting. Some real evidence-based stuff on better thinking. Now, God knows we could all use a, a big infusion of better thinking these days, right? Uh, and this is not new either. This is an ancient strategy called Elysium. Now, put simply, Elysium is the practice of talking about oneself in the third person rather than the first person. Yeah, it's a rhetorical device often used by politicians to give their words an air of objectivity because just about every fucking word out of a politician's mouth is pretty much a bunch of subjective shit right now, yeah? But when Emperor Julius Caesar wrote about the Gaelic Wars, he said, Caesar avenged the public rather than I avenge the public. Now, th this small linguistic switch kind of seems intended to make the statement feel a little more like a historical fact recorded by an impartial observer, which, of course, is what all of our asshole politicians want right now. But to modern ears, uh, Elysium can sound a little silly or pompous. Yet, some recent psychological research that I've read about suggests that Elysium can bring about some real cognitive benefits. I mean, if we're trying to make a difficult decision, speaking about ourselves in the third person can help neutralize the emotions that could lead to our thinking astray, uh, allowing us to find a wiser solution to our problem. Now, to really understand what this is all about, you, you need to understand how scientists are measuring wisdom uh, of someone's reasoning. There's a psychologist up in Canada, uh, Igor Grossman. He's at the University of Waterloo. He started working on this a while back, and, and he looked at a bunch of work by philosophers and discovered there's a series of what he calls metacognitive components. Oh, boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, this includes things like intellectual humility, acknowledgement of others' viewpoints, and a search for compromise. And these are commonly considered to be essential for wise decision-making. So, if you leave the pub after a few too many pints today, at least remember these three kings as, as a way to think better, yeah? Anyway, uh, one of Grossman's early experiments, he asked participants to think out loud about their responses to various dilemmas, such as, you know, personal problems uh, posed in, the, like, the Dear Abby column in the paper. Now, while independent psychologists took, looked at their, at their spoken responses and rated these on the criteria, he found that these tests of wise reasoning were better than IQ tests at predicting people's overall life satisfaction and the quality of their social relationships. I mean, who would have thunk? Grossman's later studies revealed that the wisdom of people's reasoning can depend on context as well, right? In particular, he found that their wise reasoning scores tended to be much higher when they were considering other people's situations rather than their own personal dilemmas. Grossman called this the Solomon's Paradox after that ancient biblical king uh, who was famous, right, for advising others wisely while at the same time making a series of really disastrous personal decisions that left his kingdom in chaos. You know, the problem seems to be that when making personal choices, we get too enmeshed in our own emotions, which cloud our thinking and prevent us from putting things in perspective. If you get negative feedback from a colleague, for example, your feeling of embarrassment might lead you to become overly self-defensive. You might therefore dismiss their opinions without even considering their advice and how it could be helpful in the long term. So could Elysium solve Solomon's paradox? Uh, the idea that, that make, uh, makes intuitive sense, yeah? But by switching to the third person, 
our descriptors of the situation start to sound as if we are talking about someone else rather than ourselves. This sense of detachment would allow us to see the big picture rather than getting caught up in our own feelings. And the research really supports this. People using Elysium to talk about their problems showed greater intellectual humility, better capacity to recognize other perspectives, and a willingness to reach compromise. And this increased their overall wise reasoning scores. The the latest studies show that that the regular use of Elysium can bring about lasting benefits to our thinking. I mean, by encouraging us to put our problems in perspective, the use of Elisa may also help us to have a more balanced response to just daily stresses. And again, the research is showing linking the thinking, you know, in the third person, people reported more positive emotions after challenging events rather than dwelling solely on the sadness and the frustration or disappointment. Now, you know, I'm finding these emotion and relationship effects particularly fascinating. Uh, considering the fact that Elysium is often considered to be kind of an infantile response, yeah? I mean, just think of Elmo on Sesame Street or that intensely irritating Jimmy character in the sitcom Seinfeld. Hardly models of sophisticated thinking, yeah? Alternatively, it can be signed, uh, taken as a sign of narcissist personality, uh, the very opposite of personal wisdom. I mean, after all, uh, you know, the the... the, the Early early thinkers thought that this was just a ruse to cover up one's own egotism. I mean, just think of a recent U.S. president's critics who point out that he often refers to himself in the third person. Clearly, politicians use elism for purely rhetorical purposes, but when applied in genuine reflection, it appears to be a powerful tool for wiser reasoning. Go fucking figure. Based on these findings, Mike now applies elism to all his decisions, small and big. Whether Mike is facing issues at work, conflicts with his friends, or strife in the family, Mike finds that a few moments of contemplating his problems from a third person helps Mike see issues more clearly. And you know, a big shout out to David Robson, a scientist and writer and author who inspired uh, Mike's rant today. Well, Mike is thinking he needs something from the bar, so sit tight. Mike will be right back. Okay, back from the bar, I got a nice single malt, but instead of talking about the, the whiskey itself, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about some of the things that go into making a great whiskey. And we got to start with the barley, yeah? I mean, everybody knows that wines and brandies are made from grapes, but what about beers and whiskeys? A, a, a lot of folks aren't sure. Uh, beer's often thought of, mistakenly, to be made from hops, but what about whiskey? In, in explaining and promoting its natural qualities, the grape does a good job, better, much better than grain. I mean, winemakers often indicate on their labels what varieties of grape they used, um, you know, even if that wine isn't one of the special varietals. They'll talk about it, their choice of grapes on the back label or a hang tag and in their public relations and everything. Whiskey makers in general don't do this. Why? Are they using poor quality barley? Well, no, because malting requires barley of good quality. The argument for this reticence really falls into three buckets, yeah. A a barley's contribution to the flavor in whiskey is a little less than it would be in beer, and even less than that of the grapes in in wine. And then secondly, uh, you know, maybe just a reflection on the above, uh, differences in varieties are less obvious when it comes to flavor. But then the, the act of distillation removes some of these characteristics, and others are masked by flavors that you get from from this during the maturation process. So all this is true up to a point, but the distiller 
puts into his vessels must be a factor in the liquid that comes out of them, I would think. So most all whiskey distillers buy their barley according to some really technical criteria, you know, the corn size, nitrogen, moisture content and shit, you know, rather than just by the variety. Now, some of the varieties bred or selected in the period of innovation right after World War II, they're still legends. The last of that line, Golden Promise, I mean, that like had like 95% of the harvest at its peak. It had a really short straw, it stands up to the wind, it ripens early, uh, it had a really nutty, rich flavor. But as the industry has grown, farmers switched to varieties that gave them more grain per acre and therefore increased their profits. Well, distillers have always sought out these varieties that yield more fermentable sugars. These don't necessarily produce delicious flavors any more than bigger, redder strawberries out of this or, or talk out, out of season, yeah? So the, the varieties that, that last much longer than four or five seasons, uh, they're, they're kind of overtaken by something better in the future. So, you know, so what's going on with the, the you know, it turns out that, that this golden promise um, is, is like the, 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 uh, the, the, the best thing that ever happened to barley. Um, McAllen, one of the really big producers, um, you know, they, they have actually kind of bought into the fact that, that, you know, we need to have golden promise around. Um, at, at one point, not too long ago, there were only two farms still cultivating golden promise, but McAllen did a good job of, of kind of persuading others. Um, the, the large distillery stands on this huge estate, right? And it's got a big farm that's been leased out, all golden promise being grown there. Now, a single farm can contribute only a fraction of the barley needed, but but it's a gesture worth worth looking at. You know, perhaps one day, all whiskey levels will be offered a single estate malt, huh? So enough about barley. Uh, hey, here's an uppity woman story that that I think you'll you'll find really fun. Hang on. Quick. Who was the first English child born on North American soil? Yeah, Virginia Dare. Her mother, Eleanor, brought her into the New World on August 18, 1587. The place Dare popped out was an unlucky outpost called the Virginia Colony on Roanoke Island. That's in present-day North Carolina somewhere. When Virginia was just nine days old, her grandfather, John White, leader of this hapless band, took off for England for desperately needed supplies. What with wars, sponsor, bankruptcy, and so on, he didn't get back for quite a while. By then, the settlement and every one of the white colonists, baby Virginia included, had vanished. Some of the local Native Americans wearing smiles were very much on the scene. Dare, however, won a certain immortality. The island and the nearby mainland are now called Dare County in her honor. Wow, the, probably the youngest uppity woman story we've ever had. And hats off to you, Virginia, for what you've done. Okay, hey, hey everybody, thanks for hanging out in the pub today. I uh, hope you come back soon. Sláinte. <laughs>